Polish-born Nicholas uh, Copernicus, you may have uh, heard of him. He was a Renaissance mathematician, a diplomat, uh, a theologian, a politician, but probably best known, he was an astronomer. Uh, He was quite bright, as you can tell, with all of those things. The only consolation was he was very ugly, but I'm not going to go there and I'm not going to show you a picture. Um, He was quite famously not very good-looking, shall we say. But what did he do? Well, he um, formulated the heliocentric model of the universe. For those of us who want some English in there, basically he understood that the sun, rather than the earth, was at the centre of our solar system. His work, which was called On the Revolution of Celestial Spheres, published in 1543, that work got him into a whole heap of trouble though. He was a theologian, so he knew about the Bible, he had a reverence of God, but he thought that what he discovered didn't contradict the Bible at all, so he was happy to publish the work. But the problem was, it challenged the kind of the establishment, the established way of thinking that was of centuries old, formulated by Aristotle, thinking that the universe that we lived in basically all revolved around us. Now, the same issue that Copernicus challenged is the same issue that challenges you and I today. Aristotle did as, I guess, I do pretty much every day. I place myself, and I guess you do too, at the centre of everything. What we want Uh, What we think we need is key to life. And that is why we partly struggle with the concept of both sin, as we've just heard very graphically displayed in Isaiah 1, and the judgment that results. We find that very difficult to kind of comprehend. And when we heard that reading, did it not grate a little bit? We're told every day, you see, that the basic morality of the society in which we live in is, is, is something like this. Everything is fine. You can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt someone else. Uh, we're told that we've got to be true to ourselves and put our desires and our needs first. So, for example, uh, many people would say, yeah, I've got a kind of, I'm a kind of Christian background. I kind of look at the Ten Commandments, for example. I'm very happy with them least the second half because the second half they're all about me and how I relate to culture and how culture works together so do not murder I'm happy with that and I'm happy with the others about you know kind of ox and donkeys and so on and coveting that's okay because that keeps society gelled together it's about how I can then live but what about the first half of the commandments honoring God above anyone or anything else Not misusing his name, OMG. We struggle, don't we, to see how serious that is. And when you think the world revolves around you, you can't see that that anyone or anything else matters more than you. And that is why we've begun looking at this little series in in the book of Isaiah. And we began last week, if you remember, do have a look at it on the website if you want to listen on the way to work sometime this week, but... Isaiah chapter 40, we began there because what does it do? It expands our horizon and our eyes are open to who God really is. We saw last week, he's the one who holds the oceans in his hands. It's a a metaphor, but if you imagine it, as Phil pointed out, it's 1.4 billion cubic metres of water. That's how big God is and bigger. It's a metaphor, it's a picture. 
I hope it brought perspective to us and to how we view God as well. And we will never understand how rejecting God is so horrendous and, and to be honest, so silly as well until we see how massive, how powerful, how majestic and how all-knowing God is, as we'll see today. This is the God we sin against. That's Isaiah 40. He's big. He's massive, powerful. And where we trivialise and relativise our sin, I guess it may be, as we'll see here, it's time to wake up. When we put ourselves at the, at the centre of the world and, and we play a very dangerous and quite a foolish game with the sovereign and all-powerful God. And if that is us, we need, as Copernicus did, a Copernican revolution, if you like. Why? Well, first point, on our sheets and hopefully up on the screen as well. Uh, first point, look at verse 1 to 4. God is angry with his rebellious people. It's a pretty stark point, isn't it? And you have to feel for Isaiah. Did you feel that? As you know, he stands up. This is his first, if you like, prophecy. Right at the beginning, you think God's going to give him a really nice sermon to teach. And what does he get? Sin and judgment. You kind of think it's not the big crowd puller, is it? You know, you wouldn't have picked it yourself. But here we go. Verse one, look at it. It kind of provides a bit of a historical framework of where the, um, and the validity as well within history. These are real people placed in real times at particular times in history. But the word goes out, however unpopular it might be, that is, Isaiah is not fearful of the people he's speaking to, but he's rather in awe, in fear of God, a right fear of God. But it's interesting, look who he addresses. Because you might imagine, if Isaiah was writing today, given the content that we've heard, you might think that this word would go out to what kind of people? Those who traffic slaves, for example, for the sex industry. Binge drinkers, maybe. You know, the drug addicts, the pedophiles. Those who beat their wives. We would love that to be the case, wouldn't we? We'd love Isaiah to just address those, not us, but those kind of people. Those that we are so often tempted to look down our noses at, maybe. But he doesn't, does he? You look at verse 2, he addresses, I rear children. That is, he's saying, I, I'm speaking to my people here. Now, that is, he's speaking to his covenant people. The people he's entered into a, a promised relationship with. Oh, you're probably thinking now, as I was early in the week in my sinful ways, I was thinking, well, that's them. That's the old covenant people. That's not me. I trust in Christ, new covenant. I'm fine. No, this doesn't apply to me. Thank you very much. Well, then I turned to 1 Corinthians 10. And it reminded me that everything in the Old Testament is written down as warnings for us, Paul says. That is the church. You see, the Bible, wherever you look, speaks to me today. And we need to be responsible to hear the warning. So why is God angry then? Well, the people very plainly in verse 2 have forgotten about God. They've, they've rebelled, the word used there. But also, can you see how, and I don't, I don't say this lightly, how stupid they've been? The, Isaiah wants to make it plain that they have been rather silly. And he uses this contrast between animals, ox and donkey here, and people, God's people, his children. 
There's a contrast set up. Let's look at that. And he points out that the ox and the donkey, they kind of know their master. They know what they need to do. They respond as they ought to respond. They're intelligent enough to know how an ox should behave, how a donkey should behave. They act according to their nature. Like a star in the sky shines. It acts according to its nature. Like a tree blowing in the wind, it acts according to its... It does all that kind of stuff with air and cleans it and so on. But it acts according to its nature. We have a lot to learn from trees. They do as they were made to do. The point being is that animals seem to know better here than God's people. God's people had ignored, they rejected the God who had rescued them. God who has established a merciful, loving covenant with them. And they rejected him. He was their heavenly father. And they turned him aside. And so at this point, just in these early verses, God's people here are doubly culpable. They're acting contrary to their nature. They should be glorifying God, but they're ignoring God. They should be worshipping him as creator, but they're not. They're actually worshipping idols, as we'll see later on. But secondly, they're also, you know, God has rescued them. He's, he, he's loved them. And they should submit to the one who's rescued and loved them. But instead, they're turning their backs. And essentially what they're doing, as we do so often, they're saying, God, I love living in this world. I'll take all the good things of this world, but I'll reject you as the creator of this world. They want to keep it. They've established a covenant. God's established a covenant with them. They're saying, I'll take all the blessings, but not the curses, as Deuteronomy warns. I'll put myself at the, the centre of the universe. Let me illustrate this if I can. Imagine, if you can, baby Guy Quarrelpole. There he is. You, you know, he's there. He's probably going to, he's got his little tartan things on, looking very dapper and smart. This lad, he grows up. He's going to be a tall chap, you know he is. And uh, you know, Matt and Courtney, they love him, they care for him. They, you know, Matt gives him bri for breakfast, bri for lunch, bri for dinner. You know how it is. Um, they give him everything he needs. Then Guy meets this lovely Christian girl. They're, they're delighted. They decide to get married. Wedding day comes, and, and Matt and Courtney, they haven't been invited, but they're kind of saying that's a bit of an oversight. The genetic line has followed in admin kind of quality from Matt down to the son. And um, they, they, they assume it's an oversight. They go along to the wedding, and uh, they, yes, it's a great wedding, absolutely fine. They go along to the reception. They look at the table plan as they go in, and their names aren't down there. And then they look at the top table and their places, which obviously, you know, they should be sat there. There's someone else sat there. They sneak in the back. They think, you know, this is, a, this is an extra oversight, but we'll kind of hang on with it if we can. The guy begins his speech and, and thanks, not Matt and Courtney, but, but this couple, David and, and Nicola. And um, yeah, Matt and Courtney, they go up to their son at the end of the, the reception and yeah, people are dancing and say, look, hey, hang, who are these people, David and Nicola? We've brought you up. We're, we're your mum and dad. It would be nice to have a word of thanks, maybe. And Guy replies, he says, well, I've decided that I want this couple, if you like, to be my parents now. It suits my needs right now. It kind of, it feels better. Just at this moment, you know, I'm being true to myself. 
They don't hassle me as much. They buy me better presents than you ever did. How hurt do you think Matt and Courtney would be? It'd be awful, wouldn't it? If your son were ever to do that. And the other thing is not natural, is it? You can't pretend that someone else gave birth to you. But that's exactly what Israel have done, God's people have done to God here in Isaiah 1. Their loving, rescuing Father God, they've turned their backs on him. And they've, they've set up idols, even in his temple, made out of you know, stone and, 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 and precious metals and all sorts of woods. And, and they're worship, worshipping these objects as rescuer and as Lord. Do you see the warning here? Well, God is angry. His people that he lovingly created and rescued were ignoring him. And they were turning from his love. And let me tell you, that if, if that illustration was, you know, oh, that's terrible. This is far, 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 far worse. So God is angry with his rebellious people. And as a result, second point, verses 5 to 9, they suffer the natural consequences of their unnatural acts. It's a bit of a long point, but you'll get it, hopefully. There are two things going on in these verses. Let me show you if I can. Firstly, God is actively, I hear this right, God is actively sending invaders to punish his people. And you see that in those early verses. This is justice. They're getting exactly as they deserve. As we saw last week, Phil brilliantly illustrated, none of us ever want to live in a world without justice. But we like to draw the line of justice somewhere away from us, don't we? Oh, we, 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 you know, we say murderers, those folks we see in the news, they're guilty. They should have some kind of form of justice, absolutely. And those terrible people who do X, Y and Z, yes, absolutely, but not me. No, the line is drawn somewhere away from me. We don't want to hear that we're guilty. But here it's like God is putting his people in the dock and the judge has pronounced the sentence to all of them. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And none of us do we? None of us want to hear that word. None of us want to admit the reality of our lives. Not, not for one moment would any of us enjoy someone knowing every facet of our lives. Let's, let, let me even give you an illustration. Now, can you imagine, even if it's the one you love who you're sat next to, can you imagine if they knew every part of your thought life? It'd be awful, wouldn't it? God is perfectly just and perfectly perceptive. And we see here his people are getting everything that they deserve. So this is firstly a loving discipline. It's retributive, that is, it's perfectly, they're getting exactly as they deserve. But it's also restorative as well. It's trying to draw them back to God. The people have rebelled. And God is angry. Now, think about his anger. It's not an impetuous anger, as I am perhaps with my son when they don't put stuff in the dish. You know, and, uh, you know, it's not like that. God is perfectly right and measured in his anger. God actively allows pain and loss to come on those he loves 
So, why? So that they might turn back to him. A point of application here, I guess it's one question of many to ask yourselves when things aren't quite working out as they plan for you in your life. If you're going through a time of loss, a time of suffering, whatever it may be, the question you perhaps need to ask is, is your loving Heavenly Father actively working through the circumstances of your life so that you might turn back to Him? He may just be doing that. And you may want to ask a question about that afterwards. But something else is going on in these verses. I said there were two things. Secondly, we see God's people are also suffering the natural consequences of their sin. They've been trusting in these idols that they've made. They've been ignoring God. God who promised a land flowing of milk and honey. All these blessings of the covenant relationship he's established. And they turned away from their sovereign protector. And what happens then? As we see in these verses, when the armies come and invade, what should they expect? Natural consequence of their sin? Well, we see. Do they win against all odds as they have done through all the kind of the stories of the, the past? No. They're crushed. They're sacked. And they're brought to their knees. See, much of what they experience is simply cause and effect. That is, if you take a good thing and make it a God thing, something will go wrong. If you've trusted in an idol, as they have done, one day you'll be brought to your knees and it won't be in worship. It's a contemporary example, and we can ask more about this later if you want. Um, A natural consequence of an unnatural act would be, and this is slightly contentious, if you build your house on a floodplain to get the idyllic country life, then cause and effect one day Something will happen. Now, please don't hear me say, please, 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 listen very carefully. I'm not being critical of those who are suffering right now in Somerset. Not at all. We must love them, support them, uh, provide everything we can for them so that they might be brought back into a reasonable life because it's hard for them at the moment. But they are suffering the effects of greed. You do not build houses on unprotected floodplains unless you want to make quick money. Now, I'm saying there are many, 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 many thousands of victims in that at the moment. Terrible victims. And we need to love them and care for them. But it is an effect of cause and effect. I'm sure there are a thousand questions on that. And we'll ask them at the end. But God has knitted into this physical world that there will be natural consequences of people's unnatural acts. But God has also written into his moral, uh, this into his moral law. And we see this most prevalently abused in our culture, with the, for example, with you know, things like uh, marriage and relationships. Sadly, they're all, all too often promoted into a, a God thing, rather than something that we worship, rather than something that is a blessing. Marriage and relationships are, are gifts from God to glorify him, to be a picture of him but also to enjoy one another, to to strengthen community as well. But they work best when we follow God's instructions about how to enjoy them. And when we ignore his instructions, we do suffer the consequences. Maybe not immediately, but we will in the end. When we take, if you like, God's good gift of sex outside of the marriage relationship, it does have destructive effects. Now, theologians call this, and it's here within the passage, they call it an intrinsic harm. 
Proverbs 6 says this. I mean, it puts it in a much more uh, kind of explicit way regarding, for example, adultery. It says this, Proverbs 6.27, For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? (laughs) The point is, no, you can't. There are destructive effects, consequences, when we ignore God's word. That is, there is intrinsic harm. Now, you don't see, you know, for all the people, you know so much goes on around us in London and, and perhaps even in your lives. You will never see God saying, oh, writing on the wall, I will punish you for this or anything like that. You just find there is intrinsic harm as your relationships suffer over time and even fall apart. The big point here is, I think, is that sin is not some kind of fun that we try to get away with. It's harm we should try and get away from. And part of God's justice, if you like, is the sin itself, because he's written into his moral law this kind of cause and effect. There's intrinsic harm in sin, in ignoring God's word. So God isn't either distant as well, just... We need to get that out of our heads as well because he's personally involved with every facet of his universe and every individual as well. From the tiniest look at someone in the office to a full-blown adultery, whatever it may be, God will personally know and judge accordingly. He cannot ignore as that would render him unjust. So God is perfectly moral and therefore his judgment and his personal, is his personal response to our sin. He won't ignore it. He can't ignore it. And at that point, we're going to, because it's kind of the, if you imagine, it's the lowest ebb, isn't it? You kind of go, whoo, this is heavy. And, you know, where do we go from here? We all kind of might be feeling, well, surely God will wipe us out. And I guess that's what you expect of the people of Israel. So let's turn to verse 9, if we can. Because we see there Unless the Lord Almighty has left some survivors, we would have come like Sodom. We would have have been like Gomorrah. There we see just this glimmer of graciousness, of kindness. Now, think of the context of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you can. It gets a little bit heavier now, okay? They were the cities that God wiped out in, in his right justice back in Genesis 19. The people of those cities, okay, were, if you like, the worst the most depraved that you could ever imagine. The rich exploited the needy. Even the angels of God, who it said in Genesis 19, when they came to warn Lot uh, and to, to take him from the city, the men beat down the door of that house to try and drag out the angels and rape them. God says here in Isaiah 1, and this is how sobering it is, the people who have turned their backs on me are like Sodom and Gomorrah. See, when we ignore God, what he's saying is that we become more and more and more like those cities. And that is what you are, God says. I guess the point here is that the question for us needs to be, do we realise how serious our sin is? Our casual ignoring God, maybe just our cool indifference, even if it's just on one aspect of our lives. It's no small thing. So thirdly, let's go to that. Um, God hates their hypocritical ritual worship. 
verses 10 down to 17. This section begins, and it's not a really positive start, is it? Because God now calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not the best thing, is it, really, for you? Uh, And verse 11, uh, I might change a few words. Follow with me, if you can, down through verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have, I have more than enough of your setting up at church and singing those hymns and going to home group. I have no pleasure in the money that you give. Verse 13, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable. I can't bear your evil assemblies. Verse 14, your, your festivals, your feasts, your going away on weekends away. My soul hates, I'm weary of them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, or just a very British and close your eyes. I will hide my eyes from you. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. And plead the cause of the widow. Now all religions that we know operate on the basis that if you sacrifice to God. Or you do enough kind of good stuff for God. It will outweigh some of the bad stuff that you do. That's pretty much what religions are. And as a result, he'll bless you. He'll give you salvation, maybe. And if you distill that down, what is it all about? It's all about you and what you've done. We need, if you like, another Copernican revolution. For the faith of the Bible is not about what you and I can do but what God has done for you. It's not about you, it's all about him. For example, we are in a church service right now, primarily not because we're here to give to God, but mainly because he serves us as we gather. We enjoy singing his praises. We rejoice because we can pray and do all these things together. It's absolutely good things. But we're not earning anything by doing this. We're simply here to delight in what God has done for us and continues to do for us. And the point here is that the the Israelites were treating the sacrifices that God required of them, but they were treating them as pagan rituals. (laughs) So much so that in verse 15, God is disgusted. Strong words here, aren't they? Disgusted with their hypocrisy in their praying. It meant nothing to them. It was empty, essentially. Verse 16 and 17, I paraphrase, but it goes something like this. Don't bother coming to church on a Sunday if you don't live it out on a Monday to Saturday. How dare you ignore the poor and the needy and then dare to come along to church and pray for your needs. These verses are not about us earning forgiveness with how we treat the poor and the needy. Absolutely not. The point is, God God wants reality and not ritual. If you call yourself a Christian, don't just be ritually acting like a Christian. Oh, coming to, you know what to do. No, really be a Christian. Trusting in Christ alone and living for him alone. God hates hypocrisy. And think of how Jesus has been addressing, for example, the Pharisees in John's Gospel. He's been looking, about, looking at that in home groups. You know, Jesus was so strong on, on, on Tuesday, wasn't he? We're looking at John 10, just saying they're not his sheep. There's no point of singing in church with a big smile on your face, yeah, and then going out and totally ignoring God's words. 
even if it's just in one aspect of our lives. God hates that hypocrisy. But here comes the sun, if you like. Here's the glimmer within the passage. Let's look at verse 18 to 20. I'm going to read those verses again, 18 to 20, because we probably need it at this stage um, of this passage. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Uh, Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they should be like wool. If you're willing and obedient... You will eat the best from the land, but if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So fourthly, much more briefly, they can know forgiveness from God. There'll be much, much, much more on this next week, as James examines um, Isaiah chapter 53. We will see how far God is willing to go to love his people, his undeserving sinful people, just like you and me. He does does it, of course, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ that suffering servant of Isaiah 53. But today the main focus, if you like, the main take-home point is to recognise that we need that forgiveness that God offers. We need to come and reason with God. That is, don't just rely on how something feels. I feel okay with God at the moment. No, we need to reason with him. We need to think about it. Otherwise, we just will look at the murderer. We'll look at the, you know, the wife abuser and we'll go, hey, I'm not so bad as them. I feel pretty good about myself. We need to think and reason and realise that our sin, though it may not be as bad as, it is red as crimson. Jesus, sorry, God says, you've got blood on your hands. You're guilty, he's saying there. You've fallen short of that pure, white righteousness that God requires. But forgiveness is freely available in the righteous life and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, who is perfect, white as snow. And the point now, just briefly, and most of all next week, will be turn to him. Trust him. Or you will be devoured by the sword of God's justice. Lastly, and we don't often talk about this, and I'm going to be very brief on this one as well. 11 verses. I I think I probably need to spend more time on this um, in the months to come. But fifthly, the consequences for our personal sin. Let me make one brief point, if I can, about these final 11 verses. I want you to see who's addressed. And the interesting thing is on these verses is that the private sins that the people of God have have been doing have consequences for the whole people of God. Look at verse 21, if you can, briefly. See how the faithful city, now he's speaking to all of the people, has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. See, the people have individually turned away from God to worship idols, but notice how what they worship defines how they are both individually and now corporately as well before God. And the uncomfortable and undeniable truth is that we always will become what we worship. And also that there's no such thing as personal sin. We like to think, don't we, that what we do and think about in the privacy of our own minds and lives, our bedrooms, whatever it may be, is private but our sin warps our characters 
and therefore impacts our whole lives, even our health, Proverbs tells us. But more importantly, it impacts the church and the community in which we live in. So it may be true that we can speak in a way that um, honours God and we can speak, we know what to say, we know what is biblically right, if you like, but the way that we might speak that truth will expose what is really in our hearts. And there will be public consequences for that. For example, we, we can very easily speak of, oh yeah, I do this for church, I'm a pretty good regular member of a home group and I give sacrificially. And you say all the right things, it seems. But then if the following sentence goes something like, oh yeah, um, I'm really struggling because I can't afford the latest Porsche. When you've just been talking about sacrificially giving. There's a bit of a, a problem there. A bit of a inconsistency if you like or a particular luxury you know do you see how that might expose your heart I'd love to say more but we haven't got time how do we finish this chapter I guess we need to heed the warnings Uh, look at verse 28 the warning's pretty stark isn't it verse 28 onwards it's very sobering and if our hearts are inclined against God if we're ritual and not reality then I think be warned You may appear the mighty man or woman, but please hear God's kind warning. Verse 31, just turn that to finish. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark and both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. It's terrible, isn't it? My friends, uh, please see God for who he truly is. He is a mighty judge. And we need rescue from his perfect justice. Sin is not a neutral thing at all. It is destructive, it dehumanises us. And God hates it and he will judge it. And what can we do? It was verse 18 to 20, it's pretty critical in that, isn't it? We need to reason with God. I guess run to him. Because he's the judge, but he's also the saviour, as we'll see in spade loads next week. And if you come here for the first week this week, I'm sorry, this is a really heavy one. Next week's all fun. It's brilliant. It's joy. But it is right and appropriate that just in a very occasional times, we see the seriousness of our own sin. And at these moments, we might see the lowliness of our own hearts. And the pure white beauty of God shown in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we trust in him, we can be washed white as snow. There's more of that next week. I'd like if we can, um, in a moment, if you'd like to turn to page 573. We're going to pray, we normally pray a prayer of confession at the beginning of the service, which is appropriate, but I thought it was right at the end of this talk to do it at the end. We're going to pray in a moment, if you want to join with us, you can, reading uh, Psalm 51, which is David's prayer uh, of confession after his adultery with Bathsheba and the killing of Bathsheba's um, husband. We'll read verses 1 to 12 of that in just a moment.
But I guess, um, as I promised, we've got a few moments. Uh, if anyone would like to ask any questions, I think you probably have one or two. Um, why don't you just turn to the person beside you? Because I, I'm sure there'll be a few things you want to say. Turn to the person beside you and see, is there anything that perhaps particularly struck you? Any questions you'd like to ask? Any points of clarification? All the normal stuff. Two minutes, chat to the person beside you. If you want to say, that was rubbish, say it was rubbish. So, you know, whatever you want, let's have, let's have some feedback in just a moment. So just speak.